Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. This is Extra Time. This is the sports show. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, where we bring you all the sports stories from the Thames Valley and beyond. I'm Will Taylor and over the next hour I'll be talking you through debate and discussion with co-host Ed Tolton. So come and join us as we get stuck into another episode of Extra Time. This week we're going to be talking all the local football, including a tough couple of results for Wickham this week, as well as both Reading sides in the Championship and WSL. We'll also be chatting all about Mainhead's FA Cup game this weekend and their appearance in the Generation Cup last week, as well as getting stuck into all the stories from the world of sport. Stay tuned for that and much, much more on this week's Extra Time. Good evening, good evening, good evening. That's right, it's seven o'clock on a Wednesday and naturally there could only be one thing that that would mean. It's time for Extra Time on River Radio, of course it is. Uh, People have been waiting tensely for the beginning of the show and here we are, we're ready. And as per, I was going to say as usual and it's getting to the stage where it's as usual now, Ed, because it's a hat-trick of appearances now for you. You're back with me again. Almost normal, isn't it? It, Yeah. It's not, um, (laughs) previously you justifiably could have asked me whether or not I was just lost, just wandering, just wandering through the studio and you just called me in. But no, I'm here, you know, not on merit necessarily but in on purpose certainly for the for the third time in a row don't know what to do with myself exactly it's it's, it's weird seeing you this much i've got to be completely honest but we we are where we are at the end of the day i suppose aren't we? So. yeah it's uncomfortable yeah. but <laughs> we'll save that chat for off air well, yeah i think probably for the best um obviously with uh, with your sort of line of work it's been quite a busy week hasn't it not just um you know obviously in the thames valley but for, for the for sport for football as a whole and sport as a whole really yeah absolutely uh, you know when a, when a big club uh, decides to dispense with the services of a manager. It's it's always busy um, and almost always unexpected. We felt that Nuno was perhaps you know on a on a bit of a tightrope, but mm. I don't think necessarily people thought he would be going first thing Monday morning. No. Um, and then of course, quick as a flash, not only is he gone, but reports start surfacing. What turn out to be very credible reports that Antonio Conte is in the frame, and that's a big story in itself as well. So, so almost by Wednesday, the, the Nuno scenario, whereby he's gone from Spurs, is, is kind of old news. Mm. You know, with no disrespect to him personally, because Antonio Conte's in now, and and now you're talking about having you know probably four of the best managers in the world in the Premier League. So yeah, very busy week, but uh, certainly been able to keep across what's going on in the Thames Valley as well, and looking forward to getting stuck into it. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to get stuck into as well. We'll obviously get into that story a little bit more later in our hot topic section. But there's plenty to talk about closer to home too. And uh, I think we'll begin with Wickham Wanderers, who've been in action twice since last week's show. Uh, the Chairboys travelled to Fleetwood over the weekend before returning to Adams Park to take on Ipswich last night with a bumper crowd as well. But we'll start with their exploits on the road, which saw them secure a three-all draw on Saturday when they travelled to Highbury. They'd led 3-1 early in that second half, Ed, but two quick-fire goals from Joe Garner and Jaden Morris um, saw obviously Fleetwood draw level. That's not typical of a Gareth, Gareth Ainsworth side, is it? How disappointing do you think he'd find that? Very disappointing. I don't think there's any, there's no two ways about that. It's curious, the concept of disappointment in football, because before the game, on the road, if you get a point, that's generally considered to be a good point. However, the shifting stands of that game, whereby you're 3-1 up against a team who are in the bottom three uh, with 14 minutes to play, 
really you want to be seeing that game out, particularly where Wickham are in the league, particularly when they've been so vocal about what their aspirations are, which is not, again, a particularly typical Gareth Ainsworth mm. thing to do. He's not usually one to to be out there and kind of tends to play down any sort of promotion chat, particularly in the season where they got promoted, I might yeah. add. But on this occasion, he's been very clear and he kind of had to be in a way because if he played it down too much on this occasion, you've got to ask whether or not the ambitions are really there. He's made it very clear that they want to get promoted, but very disappointing to let a two-goal lead slip, particularly against a side like that. I mean, let's be clear, Fleetwood were 2-0 up against Wigan last night yeah. <laughs> and then were 3-2 down within the space of about 15 minutes. So, you know, this is a side who is struggling for form themselves. And yet it would be very disappointing for Gareth Ainsworth in the circumstances. Mm. But you have to remember that they, they didn't lose the game. They did pick up a point. But I think what happened against Ipswich last night, I don't think you could say that a defeat of that nature was coming. But Wickham have got off with it a few times in the last few weeks. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't surprised that... that you know, if you like it, it unraveled. But I don't think anyone expected it to unravel quite, quite in the way as, it did. Quite as bad as it did. It's interesting. We'll touch on that Ipswich result in just a second. But that, that's an interesting point you make that, that I, I was thinking about just as you were talking then, is that there were a lot of games where it was 97th minute winners. I, I coined it Gareth time last week, famously. It's catching on, I've heard anyway. But you know. Well, you've said it again. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's up to twice now, so that's great. <laughs> um, but, but this is so... Uh, do you think that sort of... Um, your luck sort of runs out in a way. Now, not that they've been lucky to win those games, because as you've mentioned, over the course of 90 minutes, they've probably deserved the three points. But ultimately, they hadn't scored up until the 95th minute. Do you think there's maybe a little bit of things coming to bite them now where there were like those last minute winners might have been like paper over cracks that were appearing in the team? And now there's a little bit of a sort of that things are getting exposed a little bit more when they've played, especially with Ipswich, a side with a fair bit of quality. Yeah, to a point, I think, yeah, there is there is definitely something in that because what those last-minute winners paper over is that you haven't played well enough to win the game in the in the previous 89 minutes exactly. or, or, or in or in the case of Cruz, 96 can, minutes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Gareth Ainsworth, I think he knew that certainly and made pretty clear that he knew that when they did manage to come back and beat Morecambe, which was a fantastic game for the neutral, fantastic game for Wickham fans. Um, but ultimately, he did say, you know, that was a bit of a kick in the backside, really. Uh, and we were lucky to come away with a win there. Against Crewe, uh, I think you could argue that they were a little bit jaded because they had been up north and they had not you know mm. they'd not got home until I think 4:30 in the in the morning when they'd returned from the from the Rotherham game having stayed up there playing playing Doncaster at the weekend but they did get the win and the win again kind of makes you go all right well probably got away with that one or whatever mm. Fleetwood um you want to win that game you don't lose it but you let a lead slip to it be honest like a loss, it, it? it feels like a loss and ultimately I think you, you have to say it's a disappointing result and so I'm not surprised because ultimately what, what you've got here is a scenario where you're not playing well enough. Mm. You're not playing well enough. And if you're not playing well enough, eventually somebody is going to put you in a position that you can't come back from. And that's exactly what happened against Ipswich last night. Disappointing for it to happen in front of such a big crowd, you know, 7,000 or so there last yeah. night, which is more than they've had at the weekends. Bearing in mind that they've won every game at home so far. Yeah. That's yeah. extraordinary. Now, Ipswich did bring a big, big contingent. But um, but yeah, I think it, it just unravelled. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it last night. I was listening to the commentary and, and some of the things that were being said about Wickham's demeanour were worrying, you know, that they were losing the midfield battle, that it, it looked like there weren't enough leaders out there, which for a side who have a number of players who are well into their 30s, you know, and experienced players, you're an experienced player when you get to about 28. I think that much you can yeah. definitely say. So when you've got, you know, two, three, four players on the pitch who are in their 30s, 
for nobody apparently to be grabbing the game by the scruff of the neck is a bit of a concern. And and yeah, you know, you look at some of the goals they conceded last night and they were poor. The thing that Gareth Ainsworth was very good at, though, is drawing a line under a bad result and kind of going, right, that's happened now. We can either let those feelings linger or mm. we hit the reset button and we go again. And what he is good at is then drawing a response out of his players. He did it when they lost away at MK Dons. And that is the demeanour I'd expect him to adopt. But to be honest with you, yeah, it's a concern. It is. And I mean, I think I think that's the thing with Wickham, isn't it? That there's so many things that you think are sort of synonymous with the club and the way they do things. That when they're, when they're then conceding seven goals in three games, a team that, you, uh, you know, I would say... Are pr- sort of renowned for being tight at the back you know watertight and you know that they'll win a lot of games 1-0 this season it's like like we, we discussed they did do you think that's a, a, a potential long-term issue that they might have do you think they'll be looking at that going I mean the Ipswich game is a little bit more understandable I know they've not set the world a lot in League One but the quality of players in that team is almost of a championship standard they're a, it's player for player it's a very very good team seems to yeah be a lot of fair weather players yes exactly yeah. there's, a, there's a hell of a lot of experience in there and then obviously the Fleetwood one's a bit of an anomaly um, in, in how it happens and that those happens in football but could you genuinely look at those two games seven goals conceded and think that there's an issue that needs to be addressed here do you think to a point I mean I think you would look at that and you're not happy because it's seven goals in two games rather than three seven goals in two games that they conceded and and bearing in mind that they were at home for one of those games and for the other one they were playing a side that's in the bottom three Mm -hmm. and were three one up Um, you know these Things on their own, when you say them, don't sound great. They hit the ear quite badly. Um, equally, you know, the game's played on the grass, not played on paper, it's not played anywhere else. Yep. And in that regard, things can happen. And I think you you understand that, and you take that you take that as it is. In the scenario with Ipswich, for example, um, Wickham was struggling when the third goal went in, and, and when it did go in, that was kind of kind of the writing on the wall a little bit. But the fourth goal, you know, that came in you know ninety plus minutes, and David Stockdale's more or less on the halfway line trying to get. The second back. So, you know, in that sort of scenario, if you're going to go 3-1, you might as well go 4, chasing the game in front of your home fans rather than going out with a whimper. I understand that. So that's a little bit misleading as well. But it'll be a concern because conceding goals is always a concern. You know, as we heard Ryan Peters say on here, and it's such a simple thing, but it is absolutely true. The more goals you concede, the more you're asking your forward players to go and score to win you a, uh, win you a football match. And, you know, uh, Wickham games aren't always notorious for their entertainment value all of the time, but being tight defensively gives you the best possible opportunity to, to go forward and win games. And, and that will be a concern to him, the amount they have let in recently. It will be. I mean, so looking ahead then next, um, it's Hartlepool up next. They're obviously in themselves in a bit of a precarious position with having just, just lost their manager, Dave Challoner, to, to Stockport County amidst quite a lot of controversy about how that move's come about. And it was certainly something that, that um, even Hartlepool were very vocal about. Does that offer a great opportunity, do you think, for them to almost turn around and go... You know, like like you said, draw a line under a result and use some use it as a as a springboard to sort of get back on the right track. To a point, yeah, it probably does. I mean, in the same way, you might argue that that Maidenhead being able to hit the reset button when they went and played, you know, Hastings at home, mm. beat them, different competition without winning about eight games yeah. prior to that. Yeah. But getting a win just helps to flush those memories a little bit out of your system. You've hit reset, you know, by playing in the FA Cup and stuff, and and you're able to just generate a little bit of organic positive momentum. Now, prior to the to the Ipswich result, I think you could, you know, if they'd won the Ipswich game last night, I think you would have seen a very very much changed squad because of what Gareth Ainsworth has said. The, 
the priorities are. You know, you're not likely to field a particularly strong squad necessarily in the FA Cup first round against a, a team in the National League, nor against Burton on on Tuesday night yeah. after that in the you know the the Football League trophy or whatever that you're already out of, and and really nobody cares about until you get to about the quarterfinal stage. However, I think in the FA Cup they will certainly probably put out a stronger team than they might have done had they won the Ipswich game. And I think you might see it to a point as well, you know, with one or two players in, in the in the scenario with Burton in the EFL trophy. Uh, I think, you know, just to get some confidence back into you know into into the minds of, of the players. But the one thing that we haven't touched on particularly is is the loss of Gareth McCleary. And that's huge. Yeah. Absolutely huge because he's so, so dangerous for them. It's not Absolutely. that Sam Vogt scores all the goals. He's a target man and he's really good at winning knockdowns and things. But one of the people who is getting on those knockdowns and scoring goals is Gareth McCleary. Mm. If you don't see Gareth McCleary lining up against you, you might be willing to press a little bit harder if you're in opposition side. And I think, you know, Ipswich would have probably breathed a sigh of relief that, that he wasn't on the pitch last night because he seems to be able to create something very often out of mm. out of a half chance or even nothing. So, you know, we wish him all the best, obviously, but um, that's a big loss for Wickham at the moment. It, it is. And I, I think you're, you're certainly right that psychologically teams going into it will see games very differently when there's a key player missing. But, you know, best of luck to, um, to Wickham as they look to bounce back, obviously, at the weekend. Uh, next up, we're going to move Swap League for the National League and we're going to talk a little bit about Maidenhead Across the Thames Valley One more time Across the Thames Valley This This is River Radio Well now for some pop music try this Hello and welcome back to Extra Time here on River Radio. Uh, It's time to talk all things Maidenhead, as I mentioned. It's been a season of ups and downs for them so far this year, as unfortunately for the Pies, they couldn't quite capitalise on what was a massive win against Wrexham last Tuesday, losing 1-0 to Eastleigh at the weekend. Uh, Just, um, you know, we we touched on Maidenhead just speaking about, um, about Wickham then. This this sort of like inconsistent start and this unpredictability, it's not like typical of an Allen Devonshire team, is it? No, I wouldn't say that it was. I mean, the the most important thing for them was they did stop the rot, you know, a few games ago. Yeah. That was that was huge. Those those two, three, four games they were able to get decent results in acted as a bit of a of a breakwater, certainly. You know, it's not a crushing defeat, one nil away, uh, to to Eastleigh. But yeah, obviously the inconsistency when you have started to put some good results together, you know, beating Wrexham, who are a good side, would probably be a good side in the league above, to be quite honest with you. Um and obviously with the glare of the cameras as well, because the two Hollywood guys turn up and, and that's a little bit atypical and a little bit different. So um, you know, that was a good result. Beat Woking three two prior to that, beat Hastings as we said in the FA Cup to then to then go and lose and, and, and not you know and not manage to score um, will obviously be a concern but I don't think you know Alan Devonshire is, is not someone who's going to make any kind of knee-jerk reactions as we've said before it's a very long season in the National League but yeah obviously disappointing to perhaps not up maybe put up as much of a fight against Eastleigh as you would have hoped um, but you know I think it'll be a topsy-turvy season for Maidenhead that much is that much is clear but I think I've, I've said before irrespective of where they are in the league um, you know the league doesn't lie to a point they've not really been as good as they would have wanted to be mm. um, but just because you, you you had a good season in the previous year um, that doesn't necessarily decree that you're definitely going to have one this year they lost a couple of players as we've talked about the good thing is that someone like Sammy Barrett is, is coming in and, and scoring goals and seems to have, have found his form in the last few games um, but yeah they'll want to go out and, and put that right as, as quickly um, as they possibly can 
Yeah, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. One of the things I always think, and I know it's it's one of those arguments where it's the same for every team, so it's hard to sit there and say, um, you know, specifically for Maidenhead, but. You look at the turnaround that was given for teams this season. You know, if you think the playoffs even were in were in June, and then teams are expected to have a feel a team ready with preseason transfers, everything over the line by August. I, I I very much think that doesn't suit someone like Alan Devonshire. I think although he'll have his targets and he, he's a very uh, very good in that sense that he'll know what he's able to do. It's interesting that. I think he he almost might struggle in a sense to, to to make the best out of it if you know what I mean. I think he could he would probably really value those extra three or four weeks to have a look at players, you know, get scout reports, have chats with other managers or coaches and stuff like that. I mean, so, so do, do you think there's anything in that? The fact that the, just the way Maidenhead recruit and go about things that that short turnaround for the season has left them a little bit stuck, especially you know as as we've mentioned countless times on the show losing players like Danilo Orsi and then the time to replace them suddenly isn't really there is it? Yeah and, and particularly the way in which Maidenhead have Operate, to go yeah. about their business by virtue of the fact they're one of the only non-professional teams mm. in the league and that's a drum we've banged an awful lot but it, it's no less relevant this week than it was last week yeah. uh, and so on and so forth it does change things for them and obviously Danilo Orsi again an example we've used time and time again who incidentally is with Harrogate who are now top of, of, of League 2 more or less um, <laughs> So it's been a fantastic move for for him. He could find himself playing in League One in the not too distant future. <laughs> yeah, the way they're going at the moment, so you know, tremendous for him. And you know, that that's great stuff. But he came, you know, out of a lower league, and that is the way that Maidenhead often do their business. They can't they can't necessarily attract players um, of a professional status because you're effectively saying to a player, right? Do you, do you want to go part time? And that will not be an attraction for a number of players. So what they have to do is offer players who are lower down the footballing pyramid the opportunity to go and mix it with those lads who are full-time professionals and, you know, potentially see whether or not they can they can move them on. Maidenhead aren't realistically going to be in a position whereby they're going to be anything other than a selling club because the, the numbers in the equation fiscally just, just don't work for them in, in that way. So, yeah, I think he probably would have appreciated a little bit more time to, to pull that squad together, having lost one or two really, really big and important players. It's not easy to replace 19 goals no, no, in a season. It, it really isn't. Not at um, any level of the game. And there's no exact science around the way in which Danilo was recruited. He came in and it and it just worked. And there will have been plenty of players where they've come in and it hasn't just worked quite that well. So when you do find that kind of ruby in the dust, everyone's really happy. Um, but ultimately, like I say, you know what happened last season doesn't really dictate what's going to happen this season because the player turnover scenario is completely different to higher up the leagues. But one thing that Maidenhead do have is they have a really loyal and supportive fan base who are probably willing to take the, the rough with the smooth because yeah. they recognise the, the fantastic job that Alan Devonshire has done just to keep them in the National League yeah. at all and to be competitive because, what is it, 21 out of 24 teams in there are full-time yeah. professionals. Yeah, Halifax, it, yeah. of course, being one of them and they're facing them in the FA Cup mm-hmm. this weekend. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it was a really interesting argument with in that respect with the, the professional element and, and I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous statistic I saw that just some up how 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 close that gap's getting because I think if you look back maybe you know a decade or so you're looking at the gap between the National League and the Football League was huge wasn't it it was you know that there was a there was a, a real golfing class especially with the less less similar teams in the last 10 years no team that's been promoted to the Football League from the National League has been relegated which is extraordinary. It's incredible. And, and well, Harrogate Town, incidentally, one of them, are now looking to, to push up and get yeah. themselves into League One. Exactly you know? that. And teams have been able to do that. And certainly teams can move through the Football League quicker um, than they might kind of move up from the Football League into the Premier League and be legitimately competitive. You know, when Sheffield United go up 
and and are really mixing it for a season, everyone's quite surprised because nobody expects that to happen. You know, I mean, you'll be too young to remember this, I would imagine, but Ipswich in in 2000 went up and finished fifth. Yeah. Finished fifth and ended up in the UEFA Cup. Like, that never happens anymore because, as you say, that golfing class is there. But the gap between National League and, and Football League is getting smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Maidenhead, a club who are semi-professional, to be competitive in that league and genuinely hand on heart, I'd be so surprised were they to go down. Yeah. And if they did, I think you would have to look at it and go, well, you know, they're bunched above their weight for a long time. Do, and do you think it's a worry though, that, that relegation thing? Just looking at the results that have gone against them, Barnet seems to be picking up a little bit of steam and getting there, getting a couple of results. There, there is one team in that bottom three in Dover that look done essentially you know that they, they, they're struggling even to even to field teams and all that sort of stuff and it that that doesn't seem to be a great situation there which is obviously terrible but but you know Barnett are picking up results obviously we saw Southend who probably should be too good for the drop ultimately but that they are there or thereabouts they beat Dover last night quite comfortably do you think it's genuinely one of those things where you know that it's, it's going to be really important to not get complacent with it, isn't it? And, and realise that. And I don't think they will be, but at the same time, because you, they've been they've been comfortable for so long in the National League, and they have been, because they've never really been threatened with relegation, certainly not over the last couple of years. Is there an element that you think they need to just sort of understand where they are right here, right now? I think as a player, you always know where you are. Yeah. Because, you know, particularly when you're in, in the bottom half of the table, and especially towards the bottom half of the bottom half of the table, yeah. you're looking at how you can improve and you want to be better off. Because it's always in the back of your mind. Um, and I think, you know, maidenhead players will be only too aware of the discrepancies in terms of what they're working with in terms of budget facilities versus, you know, I mean, you've only got to go to Notts County. Notts County as yeah. a stadium Autocamp, holds about, yeah. you know, 19,000. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not a great stadium in terms of it could definitely do with some TLC. But um, to be honest with you, you go there as a as a player who generally yeah. plays the football at York Road. You, you know there's a difference. Yeah. You can see yeah, there's course, a difference. Yeah. Um, so they'll be aware of that. Uh, and they'll be, you know, timely reminders the whole, the whole time. But I think they'll be aware of where they are and they'll be aware that they need to, you know, they need to step it up. But that'll be being drummed into them, not necessarily at this juncture about a relegation thing, just because it's not good enough. It's not good enough to, to you know, to lose the, uh, the, the way they were losing on that big long run. Mm. But losses happen throughout the course of the season. You know, Maidenheads, you know, lost just as many games as they as they won last year and they finished mid-table. Yeah. The problem is that if that's the balance you're looking to strike, well, you've probably lost, you know, you've probably lost uh, about half the games you're going to lose all season yeah, if, you're already, looking, yeah. if you're looking to do that. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it'll be a concern, but I don't think something that relegation won't be hanging like a sword of Damocles over anyone's head just yet, but yeah. they'll know they need to improve. Yeah, definitely. Just before we move on uh, to, to have a little bit of a chat about Reading, that FA Cup game against Halifax on Saturday, I mean, it's, it's huge at, at, for any club, I think, at any level pretty much, the, uh, especially in the lower levels, I should say, sorry, the FA Cup. How how much of an opportunity does it does it rank playing a team in your own league, albeit one that are doing very well, to sort of progress? And that, how, I mean, I'll be able to say just how much that money means to clubs at that level. Do you know what I mean? It's just ridiculous. So that that's that's such a vital game. But also, like you said, it's a, a break away from the league as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and what Maidenhead have got is they've got the peace of mind of knowing they've already beaten that team once yes, this season. Yeah. Um, so with, in that regard, you know, and we talked about it, didn't we, when we were discussing Wickham earlier on, that, that ultimately what we imagined would probably happen with regards to uh, a side for Wickham that had beaten Ipswich is a lot of those players would be getting a rest, not just 
just in the in the game against Hartlepool in the FA Cup, but probably in the in the game against Burton in the EFL Trophy mm-hmm. because they're out of that competition already. It's a group stage that nobody really wants, but for some reason we still do it. Yeah, um, you know, I think Wickham would probably happily declare and and say, right, we're not going to play that game. You know, who loses out of that? Basically nobody. So let's just you know save the save the travel and be a bit greener. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, now I think you'll probably see a, a couple of players that you might not have seen previously in Halifax's case. If you're fifth in the league, um, you how, know. Yeah, how what, do you, what, how do you yeah. balance your priorities? It's a little bit different, isn't it? Because ultimately in the second round, if you're Halifax, you can get through the second round or indeed you're Maidenhead, you can get through the second round. You can then potentially be playing a big club relative to your own yeah, status. Yeah, yeah. You know, there is a, a financial windfall to be had. And the, the thing is, that well, means with something. It, with it, your, your, two game, your two games, I know it's two big games, but they are both of them. It, retrospectively are both two games away from the dream tie that sets them up for 10 years well you know, potentially if, that if they, do you know what I mean if they get Man United away in the, yeah, in the third and, round you know, that's, and, that's and, Maidenhead's and sword isn't Wickham it? got that didn't they in yeah. the League Cup they, they got Absolutely. the opportunity to go and, and it's not just you know for Wickham it wasn't just about the money because that's slightly different but the opportunity to go and mm. play Pep Guardiola you know the champions of England Champions League finalists that's Absolutely. huge you know and if Maidenhead were to, to be able to get through this game and then the next one you know a huge massive for the club even if you go and play a, a QPR yeah. That's massive. Yeah. Absolutely massive. So, you know, it's an interesting one, isn't it? And it's a slightly different dynamic to the to a Wickham who are already league uh, league, you know, a league side and and so perhaps playing another league side or oh, even a Premier League side round, isn't they, isn't, suppose, you know, yeah. quite quite the same. Um but it'll be interesting to see the approach that Halifax adopt because I think Maidenhead will be looking to try and generate that positive momentum again and would then use it as a springboard saying, well, look, they're in our league. They're fifth in the league. We're beating them again if they were to get a win there. Halifax, you know, do you want to put yourself in a scenario whereby you you, know, you give yourself the best chance in the subsequent games, you strengthen that grip that yeah. you have on potentially being in the playoffs? I think Halifax will probably go for this, to be honest. At this point, I think that the fiscal so early thing in the season, is, yeah. is, too, is too important to any club at that level to not take a dive, but to field a slightly weaker team. So that would be my anticipation, but it should be a good game. It should be, and Halifax certainly have. They, they really have set the world alight and shocked a lot of people. I think internationally, Pete Wilde seems to be doing an incredible job there. Um, so we'll certainly keep an eye out for them, and as well as obviously keeping an eye out for Maidenhead's exploits um, over the next weeks. But now it's time for us to head uh, slightly differently to Reading, who've endured a difficult period over the last couple of weeks, and there's not much sign of things getting any easier across the Thames Valley. One more time across the Thames Valley. This this is River Radio. Well. Now for some pop music. Try this. That's right. We're back here on River on River Radio for extra time, having a little bit of chat now about Reading um, and everything that's sort of going on at the Select Car Leasing Stadium. It was a good start for them. They seemed to do okay. It was the season wasn't too wasn't too bad, despite there was as as we've spoken about on the show before, a lot of things going on around the club that weren't ideal. But things seem to have dipped off a bit now. They seem to be sort of coming towards that team that got the points deduction and, and were surrounded by the points deduction um, sort of drama, I should say. Uh, they did lose last night, though, against Millwall. That was four straight defeats for them, Ed. Where do you think they go from here? Where can they possibly go from, from another loss to a team that ultimately they're probably looking at going, we should be beating them? Oh, I mean, the only way you would hope 
that Reading can realistically go in the circumstances for defeats on the bounce. Now, there's no shame in losing 2-0 at home to Bournemouth because Bournemouth have been absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's 15 games now that they're unbeaten. Top of the league by a distance. Top of the league by five points under Scotty Parker. Goal difference is 18. You know, they've been they've been fantastic this season. So, you know, a lot of teams are going to lose to them. That's There's no real shame in that. But there are certain teams bearing in mind, and again, this is all relative, isn't it? Because we, we spoke to a Reading podcaster before the season started who tipped them for a relegation battle. Yes, all of a sudden, you know, and he's meant to be a supporter of the club, and I'm mm. sure he is, you know, and he was just being realistic and that was his honest opinion. Um, but then all of a sudden they find themselves flirting with the playoffs. In the context of the fact you are flirting with the playoffs, you know, losing to Blackpool, losing to Blackburn, um, losing to Millwall, these are poor results. Yeah. They're poor results. 100%. Um, particularly the Blackpool one, again, having been 2-0 up at home, uh, that's poor. Didn't show up against Blackburn, to be quite honest with you. But again, you know, Millwall, it, those are the sort of games you really want to be winning. And the thing about staying in the championship is ultimately you have to beat a few of those teams who are mixing it for the playoffs in order to recruit the points necessary. I wouldn't say this was necessarily a panic stations relegation battle scenario just yet, but this tide needs to turn. It's going to be even more difficult. Now, Paunovic has obviously been, you know, declared uh, to to have COVID mm-hmm. and, and won't be around, you know, for the for the game against Birmingham either. I'm not even sure he's, he's being able to be involved in, in training. I mean, he won't be. So he's, everything's happened to, to happen from afar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Birmingham as well, watching, I mean, it's not... Not, easy, not going to be an easy game for Reading, even if they were in form. Just looking at that, the way that Birmingham played last night, they absolutely dispatched Bristol City, which, I mean, even it, it, not too much of a shock because Bristol City obviously aren't in the form of their lives. But it's one of those, it's such a cliche, isn't it? But the Championship really is one of those leagues where anyone can beat anyone. It's, it's such a hard league to predict. I mean, I don't think you'd have predicted that, that, that Reading would have lost the, the amount of games that they have up to this point, certainly in the last few weeks anyway. But equally, I don't think you'd have predicted at the start of the season they'd have won as many exactly, as they did. Yeah. And, and, and therein lies the beauty of the league, as you say. But yeah, worrying results for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, it, like you said, and then they, they beat Fulham away, don't they? And it's suddenly everything looks great. It's it's a really, really sort of um, strange situation. Uh, just moving on to a little bit, just to talk about those those players that uh, moved on from Reading. They seem to be absolutely flying, don't they? They seem to be churning out some absolutely top jaw talent. Obviously, we saw Elise get an assist against Man City That's last correct, week, yeah. which was, I mean, he he was fantastic in that game. I mean, for, the, for them to for Crystal Palace, your team, of course, to beat Man City, full stop, was brilliant. Of course, yeah. But but for the, I, th- I thought he was absolutely brilliant. And then Danny Lode obviously got a goal for, for Porto against Bovista. So that's, you know, it's good to see these players going out and making something of themselves away from Reading, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah. But it's a question of what Reading can then do to to reinvest that money they've got. I mean, with the greatest of respect to a team like Crew, who had notoriously churned out some fantastic players over absolutely, the years. Yeah. Look at where Crew are, you know. And, and the dream, I think, for a lot of clubs is to, you know, nobody necessarily wants to be performing with the inconsistency of say a Southampton at the moment but Southampton are a notoriously a selling club who've developed an awful lot of players who have all been bought by Liverpool um, but in all seriousness they, they have developed a number of players um, and sold them on but they aren't you know consistently staying in the Premier League that's not happened for a team like Crew, and, and we're probably not in a place yet where we can see what the upshot of developing so many great homegrown players is going to be for Reading, um, but it, it's fantastic to see those guys doing well. Elise has been has been really really good since he came in, and, and you know he's part now of a Palace, my side of a of a, a quartet. Certainly, I would say of young players going forward. Where you look at it and think, actually, outside the top six, I, I, I wouldn't want to be facing facing no. these, these these front players you know along with Eberege Eze and and Eduardo's come in and stuff like that, and, and he's mixing it and he doesn't look out of place in the Premier League. 
at all. Um, you know, so it's great that they do have that going on. But at the moment, the focus needs to be squarely on what's going on on the pitch for the club themselves. And yeah, it's a concern and obviously more of a concern because Panovic is, is out of action at the moment. He's not around. And uh, yeah, with that in mind, you, you, the person who needs to be leading from the front, particularly in, in times of, of trouble, isn't there and won't be there in the touchline on, on, on Saturday. So, uh, yeah, a concern, certainly. Yeah, the biggest person that's going to turn the tide, as you mentioned, just isn't there, That's which, which is obviously such a huge thing for them. Obviously, that's going to be quite a tough game against Birmingham. The, very, very conveniently, the other Reading team are playing Birmingham this weekend as well, um, as the women take on Birmingham in the WSL. Um, it's, it's been a bit of a rocky start for them, hasn't it? But they seem to be picking up a little bit of form now and getting, getting a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, they got their first win in the uh, in the WSL, which was crucial because it had been a poor start, a very poor start. Um, incidentally, they've not been able to keep that run going uh, in the way that they would have liked. They, they In the group stage of the uh, FA WSL Cup, they, they lost to Bristol City. That was disappointing. Um, which them, was disappointing because yeah. Bristol City had been relegated. Uh, so we're in the league below. Mm. Um, and you would really want to build on that win with another win. Birmingham, however, are also in, in a relegation battle. And so this is, you know, it, it's a cliche, but it is one of those classic six pointers. You've got to, you've got to win this game, really. Um, you know, and, and Beth and Roberts has said as much, you know, she said that, that Birmingham is a must win for us. And it really, really is because ultimately it is about clambering over those teams that are at the bottom with you. Mm. You almost end up in a mini league pretty quickly once, yeah. you know, once the, the big sides are pulling away. And, and that's what's happening in the WSL already. We've not played that many games mm. but there is a clear uh, sort of discrepancy between those at the top and those at the bottom they, they've got to they've got to win this one for, for a team performing as bad as they are in Birmingham as well in the WSL they're quite resilient aren't they they're, they're not they're not rolling over and getting sort of pumped by teams regularly they're, they're a resilient side and it's it's a difficult one to it's, it's not especially like you said with with the pressure on the game and Reading will be going into it as favourites Birmingham also almost don't have that much to lose going into it in terms of that they're not probably expected to win it as long as you can stay in games you always give yourself a chance and, mm. and that's why Reading have got to be really really careful here that they don't go in and think right this is this is three points we can definitely get we're definitely going to win this you always have to respect the fact that your opponent can cause you a threat whilst they're not as you say you know going down you know four five six nil and Birmingham aren't um, so to be honest with you Reading have really got to keep their guard up and deliver what I would call a really professional performance go and get the job done Absolutely. And, and that is going to be so so important for them because you know with the, the WSL starting to get the coverage it is you know the, the longer you can stay in there and mix it with those bigger sides you know they went and got a draw with, with Manchester United last season for example you know that's a, that's a big deal um, but you, you stand to improve your club the most if you can remain in that top league Absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, certainly be interesting to see how both Reading sides get on against Birmingham this weekend. But uh, we're going to turn our attention now back to Maidenhead, but not back on the pitch as you'd have thought. Uh, so we're going to we're going to be having a. They, obviously, the current crop of Maidenhead players, as we mentioned, gave a gave quite a solid account of themselves in the National League. But a representative side flew the Magpies flag in a different competition earlier in the week too, and Ed went down to see how they got on across the Thames Valley. One more time across the Thames Valley. This. This is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. That's right, Ed was down at the Generation Cup, which uh, Maidenhead United were a big part of this week. He'll be able to tell you all about it as he went down there and uh, give us an insight into what it was all about.
The sound of football fans inside Stadia has once again become commonplace, but on Sunday, Maidenhead United fans who ventured to Hitchin Town were able to watch the Magpies contest a new competition. Known as the Generation Cup, the tournament features nine of the 11 clubs whose forefathers contested the inaugural edition of the FA Cup back in 1871. 150 years on, Maidenhead, Hitchin and Crystal Palace came together for a round-robin tournament, the winners of which would advance to the finals, scheduled to be held in March next year. Though a celebratory tournament in principle, the games were hotly contested. Maidenhead kicked off the event against the hosts but were caught cold early on, conceding a low drive from Hitchin's Josh Sozo just eight minutes in. It was a disjointed start from the Pies, who found themselves two down shortly afterwards. Hitchin's Danny Talbot latching onto a lovely through pass before deftly chipping the ball over goalkeeper Carl Pentney. A break on the half-hour marks all Maidenhead regroup, and they entered the second period with fresh impetus. Their invigorated approach saw them rewarded almost immediately, as they struck the post barely three minutes after play had resumed. But a breakaway saw Talbot net his second and the home side's third, effectively ending the chances of Maidenhead making a winning start. The game was far from over though as Freddie Watson pulled back an incisive goal 13 minutes from time. Hitchin were then careless with their kickoff, losing possession immediately and allowing Eddie Keane to smash the ball home to make it 3-2 just 60 seconds later. As the game drew to a close, Maidenhead pushed for an equaliser and were rewarded when Pete Hill fired the ball back into the net after it rebounded from the woodwork, earning an unlikely draw for the Magpies with the last kick of the game. 3-3 at full time and all to play for against a star-studded Crystal Palace. The Eagles opted to field a team with a wealth of professional experience, but it was Maidenhead's turn to take an early lead, as Kiki Dezimba evaded a valiant last-ditch tackle to calmly lift the ball over the advancing goalkeeper after his initial attempt was saved. He then doubled the lead as calls for offside were waved away, advancing on goal and slotting past the onrushing Gary Phillips. For all their neat touches, Palace looked off the pace and were lucky not to go three behind when Dezimba broke free again, this time attempting a chip which dipped just over the crossbar. The Eagles did eventually get glimpses of goal, but their forward pairing of former England striker Johnson and Leon McKenzie weren't able to convert the chances that came their way. Instead, it was Joby McEnough who broke the deadlock, his deflected shot from the edge of the area deceiving goalkeeper Pentney, who should have done better having still got a firm hand to the ball. The second half saw Palace probe for an equaliser, with McEnough and Darren Ambrose proving the catalysts for the majority of their attacking play. But Maidenhead was stout defensively, and when 18-year-old Dezimba completed his hat-trick, albeit against the run of play, the Magpies could breathe a little easier. But Palace would not be denied, and were back on level terms with a quick double from James Scowcroft and Mikhail Leisurewood, before Mark Bright missed a golden opportunity to snatch a late victory for the Londoners. Another 3-3 draw, and after two highly credible ties, I caught up with United chairman Peter Griffin, who gave me his thoughts on the day. We definitely want to be part of the celebrations today, and it was a lovely venue coming to Hitchin, one of the other grounds uh, featured on that first day of FA Cup games alongside York Road in Maidenhead. And we put together, there was a mixture of a few supporters, a couple of uh, people associated with the club, uh, some ex-players and, uh, and a couple of youth team players to try and make up the numbers in terms of like uh, getting our average age down a little bit. So, so it was lovely. And um, we came along and it, you know, the deluge when we got here has, has made way to a beautiful sunny afternoon and we're really enjoying it. A couple of draws later. So fantastic. 
Yeah, a couple of topsy-turvy games for your side, as you say, made up of a, of a range of different ages. From your perspective as someone who's in charge of a club, but also someone who plays, what was it like to be on, on the field against some of these Palace players? Because there's literally thousands of league appearances between them. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I said over the years I've played different uh, charity matches and things like that down at York Road and things like that, but I've never played against the team with so many top-flight players and really, really decent players on the other team. Sometimes you get a few you know, sprinkled around. But this Palace team is packed with great players and, you know, you know, colossuses of the club in terms of, you know, look at the keeper and you look at the centre-backs and all those, that absolute, you know, um, giants from Crystal Palace. So it was an absolute pleasure. And it's lovely that um, they've supported this competition in the spirit it was intended and they've come along and having a real good go. And, you know, it's, um, I think for a lot, a lot of us, it was nice just to play here today and we've had great fun. Ed there speaking to Peter Griffin, uh, obviously chairman of Mainhead United, uh, about their performance in the Generation Cup, which was obviously a really nice incentive uh, for for everything, you know, for everything going on, and, and a nice sort of a way to sort of commemorate what what is a really big thing in in football. Um, Ed, obviously you were down there. What was the atmosphere like? What, how did you sort of see it? Yeah, it was good. It was well received. It's always curious, isn't it, when a, a new competition is devised and you get a scenario where you've got three teams playing in a, a round robin formation as it were so uh, I think it, it doesn't conform in that regards to your typical uh, your typical scenario with regards to football competitions but I think everybody took it in the manner in which it was intended which was a bit of fun you know and there are there are teams you know established teams in there Maidenhead are an established team in there Hitchin are an established team in there you know Crystal Palace are the, are the big team um, that have that have kind of been selected to play something to add to the training um, well that would be nice wouldn't it? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say no um, but but, uh, but equally, you've got, you know, teams like Wanderers who aren't playing in, in particularly, you know, high level league football or whatever, but have been recognised as well. And I think, you know, for, for Peter and, and the Maidenhead, the Maidenhead guys, it was great to be involved in the way that they were. They were actually, you know, probably the, the second biggest team in the competition mm. um, in terms of their profile uh, because they're playing in, in National League. But, you know, the atmosphere, as I say, I think it was it was received very well. Um, there weren't masses of people down there, but they were very supportive and, and they were supportive of everyone. It mm. was, you know, the Palace brought the most people um home staff fanatics weren't they? absolutely yeah um you know they put the, the whole one of the whole ends was sitting just banging the drum flags you name it um it looked like a fifa crowd um it really it really did at one point i was stood at the i was the only person in yeah, the yeah. one end to, yeah, exactly, to be honest yeah. with you um but no i'd say they were they're probably about you know 200 250 no, something like good. that yeah, so for, for you know is, in the yeah. circumstances um great for hitching as well to be able to host because of course every secondary spends that we talked about with with ollie bailey for non-league clubs it's important you know people buying mm. something from the from the cafeteria area or buying the programme and, and that kind of thing and yeah everyone was, was really friendly and, and the nice thing was that there were groups of fans from Hitchin talking to groups of fans from Crystal Palace two teams that would, they would never interact no, of course, yeah. but for this particular occasion they were able to um, and yeah Palace obviously brought a very strong team and uh, and have really got after that competition probably as you say <laughs> to you know to give themselves an opportunity of getting some silverware exactly well I, the, the guy bless them they didn't win too much beforehand did they, I suppose. So there was, was a chance of redemption for those Palace we, legends. We, to be fair, we won the playoffs a few times, um, but uh, I don't know. We can get into whether or not that's a trophy, yeah. a real trophy, another time. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. just looking at those straws you're grasping for there. Sorry, mate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was it like then? Obviously, we talk, we spoke, we got those Palace legends. What was it like seeing those? That must have been obviously as a fan of the club, grow, like, growing up and seeing a couple of those players. Was it? Was it? A it nice was feeling. Uh, yeah, it was surreal. To be, it really yeah, was yeah, uh, because, and I, I've said this before. Um, you know, to 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 a few people when you work in, in football as a sport as, as I do um, the thing about being involved in it day to day 
is that it it ceases to be escapism. It is professional. And as a result of that, you know, you, you do become more cynical about the game because I see a lot more football than most of my friends, purely by virtue of what it is I do for a living. And as a result of that, basically, it, it becomes, it's not quite as special. It's, you, you cease to be a fan in the purest sense of the word. But by going back in time almost to see these guys play, I was that fan again that was watching Andy Johnson when I was 15 and 16. <laughs> to see him put on a Palace kit again and watch him play was something you probably never thought you'd see yeah yeah exactly you know it was it was fantastic it really was and you know there were there were a few these games as I said in 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 the piece these games you know initially they were a bit of fun but very quickly both both sides you know whoever was playing wanted to win there was no doubt about that I mean Mila Yedinak at one point I think Maiden had a couple of youth team players in it Mila Yedinak went in on one of those youth team players like he would have done when he was playing and you were thinking whoa that's a mentality thing for him I guess that was it was it was big it was even that long no he's not that long aside and and that was the case you know there were a couple of players where you sat there and thought you know what actually you could Probably, probably, do a job. probably <laughs> still do a job. I mean, Darren Ambrose looked very fleet of foot even now. Yeah, you know, okay. he's not been retired that long. Joby McEnough was playing until he's about thirty-eight with late Norman. Yeah, you know, was, so yeah. and captain. There was a well. there was a few players in there who um who yeah you know still looked pretty good value for for what they had. And there were a few in there that were just nice to see. I mean, I, you know, I saw I never saw Mark Bright play. Mm. Uh, I saw him on Sunday, and he missed a sitter. I might add, he missed a <laughs> sitter as well, and he knew, um, <laughs> which was which was to be honest was just quite funny. Yeah, um, Nothing but yeah, look, it was a, on a personal note. It was it was great to see. But Maidenhead put in a good performance. You I was going to say, how would you appraise Maidenhead's performance? Then what, what did they did they give a good count of Ryan Peters? Of course, who's the assistant manager? He was part of the squad. That That's was there, right. And Peter Griffin, as I mentioned, yeah. as well. Peter Griffin was was playing. Um, you know, chairman in his fifties or whatever, but still plays you know football regularly and that mm. kind of thing. And it was a, it was an interesting mix actually for for Maidenhead because they had some they had some fans playing. Uh, they had, you know, Ryan Peters playing. They had Peter Griffin playing. They had some youth team players. You know, so it was a real mixture of people. In a sense, I think it was seen as, a, as an opportunity to reward some of those who, who give so, so much, much to the club yeah. throughout the course of, you know, the course of seasons and, and what have you. So uh, I think every every side actually struggled generally, weirdly, apart from, I say apart from Hitchin. I mean, Hitchin, Hitchin were leading and, and Maidenhead came back into the game. But every side in their first game did not play to their potential. Course, every side yeah. in their second game played a lot, lot better. So Maidenhead probably drew with Palace based on the fact it was Palace's first game and Maidenhead's second. Palace then went and battered Hitchin um, 4-0. Um, Hitchin, who would have been, three, I think, 3-1 up against Maidenhead in, in the first game. So that was kind of the way that it worked out. And Maidenhead actually ended up finishing second of the three. Um, so, yeah, I think they, they, you know, they did well. But I think the important thing was they went along, gave a good account of themselves, enjoyed it. And, and to get a point off that Palace team, despite the fact that they were up and, you know, we've praise Wickham for for sacrificing the lead yeah. um, but I don't think we praise that Maidenhead team in, in quite the same way I think it was I think it was great for them to, to be involved and you know as a Palace fan obviously you know fingers crossed for, for the finals day in March <laughs> next year Can we expect to see Peter Griffin on the team sheet on Saturday in the FA Cup then? I wouldn't rule it out yeah. at this point I wouldn't rule anything out gave a good you know gave a good performance solid, solid. so you solid. know if Alan Devonshire is looking for someone If he wants know, to shake things up there you go There you are the way, be, I mean that if that happens, that'd be a viral video. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we wouldn't be first to that story. Um, but no, regardless, despite not getting through to the finals, it sounds like Maidenhead were really well re- represented in what's a really prestigious competition to be part of. So well done to them. It's time now, though, to widen our gaze beyond the Thames Valley and talk about the, new- the sports news that made headlines across the nation this week as we turn our attention to this week's Hot Topics. <laughs> 
Yes, the Premier League's managerial merry-go-round turned again this week as Nuno Espirito Santo was relieved of his duties by Tottenham Hotspur. The Portuguese boss had only been at the helm for 17 games but lost 3-0 at home to Manchester United and was deemed suffi- and that was deemed sufficient to dispense with his services. It's one of those ones, Ed, isn't it, where you look at it and it's hard to argue with what Tottenham have done. But ultimately, is any is 17 games enough time for any manager to really put his stamp on a team? And, and especially how late he came into the, to the season? Um, well, I think that it's a strange one, isn't it? Because Nuno was always going to be the full guy here. He was always going to be the full guy. But I think 17 games was enough time to him, for him to put his stamp on it. And the fact was that Tottenham didn't like it. Yeah. And, and therein lies the problem because... You knew what you were going to get, really, with Nuno and the way that he plays football. And I feel like Spurs have turned around and gone, actually, that wasn't really what we wanted. Um, well, that's what you appointed. Yeah. You know, well, he was about 25th choice for the job, actually, in fairness, wasn't he? Which probably didn't help. And but... quite publicly yeah. as well. So that was always going to be, unless he made a stellar start that then continued, then that was always going to be, that was always going to be the first thing that was going to be wheeled out when the tide's starting to turn. And when I say the tide's starting to turn, I don't say that as though it was inevitability. Inevitably, you're going to lose some games at some point. Yeah. But as soon as the, the rot set in, very quickly it became a case of, you know, I mean, rather publicly even, they were talking about, you know, who, we, who it was that would replace him, it, it seems. So Before even I, feel, sacked, yeah. I feel in a sense that really this, is, this, doesn't, this doesn't come down to Nuno. This is, this is more an admission on Tottenham's part, and particularly that of Daniel Levy, that they made a mistake. The interesting thing now, though, is that they brought in someone who is a truly, truly world-class manager. And we've now got four of those, I would say, in the Premier League. It's, in, it's, in, it's the best managerially, I think, arguably, the Premier League's probably ever been in terms of a cross the big four, the four big teams that are going to be challenging. Absolutely. And I think it's a, a huge, um, a huge endorsement that those managers want to come and work in the Premier League. Um, and it's going to be fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. It really is. And I think one thing, one of the things that always that gets me with Conte is like, you, you can't demean, by no means am I discrediting what he did at Chelsea because that team that he won the league with at Chelsea was just absolutely phenomenal. Player for player, pound for pound, they were one of the, one of the better teams I've seen win the Premier League. I don't think there's much arguing with that. And, you know, I, I can never read too much into a manager that doesn't last very long at Chelsea because no manager lasts very long at Chelsea. No disrespect to them, but they just don't. Um, you know, even Mourinho, who, who was there for two spells, never seemed to last that long anyway so uh, the thing is that I've, I find a little bit odd and, and sort of playing the devil's advocate I, I don't disagree that it's a great appointment but with Inter Milan obviously he took over them when they weren't in an ideal position and got them to be champions of Italy again no one looked like they could take Juventus off their porch this was the Juventus team with Cristiano Ronaldo in as well it's worth remembering and and they stayed seamlessly knocked him knocked them off their perch and and I know they had they had some great players but he's that manager that has that appeal to bring in good players the argument is I think that Tottenham is not a two-year project to get Tottenham challenging up there with the likes of Chelsea Man City Liverpool for example I think they're I think they're further away than that do you think he'll have the longevity to stay obviously he only signed an 18-month contract um well I think the thing about it is is it's all relative once again mm. you have to ask yourself what is success for Tottenham because yeah. I put it to you that success for Tottenham and, and in the eyes of Tottenham fans can be achieved without necessarily putting them much closer to to Chelsea Manchester United and to Liverpool because I don't think Tottenham fans realistically bearing in mind where they'd be coming from 
would expect their team to be challenging those three teams anytime soon because you have to have an element of realism about what you expect in a club. But if Antonio Conte were to say win the FA Cup <clears> this season, which is very plausible, plausible to yeah. me, very still plausible. In the, still in the Carabao S- Cup as well. Yeah, exactly. If he was to go and, and win you know, one of those competitions, that fourth spot, I would say, is up for grabs as well. Spurs yep. are by no means out of that. I put it to you that... He has he has succeeded with Spurs because he's put them back into Champions League contention. Let's say he wins the Europa League as well. You know, all of a sudden you could be talking about a guy who's come in, won two trophies and got them into the top four. So uh, I think, yeah, you're right. It's it's certainly a longer than two year project if you are talking about Spurs being title contenders. But to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not sure you could credibly say that Spurs have been legitimate, genuine title contenders in a number of Premier League seasons gone by, even under Pochettino. Yeah. There were plenty of seasons where it didn't look like they were going to win the league mm. under Pochettino, you know, even when they were playing really, really well. So it it depends on what is regarded. Now, if someone like Manchester United, mm. you have to be challenging for the title to really be deemed a success. Because yeah. to be honest with you, even if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, we talk about him not winning the the, the, the European um, trophy they were in, uh, the Europa League, uh, and, you know, and that's that's poor from them. That's poor to, to not win it when you get to the final against Villarreal. That's poor. Mm. But if they had won it, that to Manchester United fans is pretty much European-wise the equivalent of of winning the Community Shield. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's the Carabao Cup of the of the that, that sort of thing, isn't exactly. it? It's yeah. exactly that. Uh, the only reason I say it isn't in the sense that I think Tottenham would maybe be expected to leave, but I don't think Antonio Conte goes there without wanting to win it. If you look at the the, the past that goes before him, I don't think it. it I, I know it's a really big thought. It's a big task to turn around, and he, like you said, if he does win those trophies and get them in fourth, it, it, he is deemed a success as Tottenham manager. But for me, that's not what Antonio Conte is about. Antonio Conte is about going somewhere and winning titles, and I don't mean FA Cups mm. and and th- he's. he's about going somewhere and actually winning divisions if you know what I mean and that that and when you say you mentioned it there with Solskjaer and whether or not he'll stay and how you know because that that's a that's a slightly different argument but Conte's not stupid he knows that Solskjaer only has to lose three games and he he is the pretty much the only candidate for the United job whereby he would walk into a better setup with more with more money and and probably in a position where he could you know it's definitely squad wise a position where that he could genuinely challenge for the league within a year. But I think you have to realise that with regards to negotiations with Daniel Levy, who effectively by sacking Nuno Espirito Santo, in my opinion, has basically held his hands up and said, "Yeah, I got that one wrong," yeah. which comes off the back of getting the Mourinho appointment wrong yeah. um, and, and a rather drawn yeah. out uh, search for Mourinho's successor, which ultimately then hasn't worked. Quite frankly, it would have been Conte who holds all the cards. Now, you raise a very good point because Conte is about giving himself a fighting chance of really going, tearing it up and potentially winning a league. Um, and I think if there is going to be conflict or tension between Daniel Levy and Antonio Conte, it will be the same sort of thing, bizarrely, as I remember once being said about Doug Ellis at uh, Aston Villa, which is that he'll give you the money to make you into a good team. But when it comes to giving you the money to really make you compete, make you a great team, that's where it doesn't seem to quite flow as readily. The thing you've got to remember, and I was speaking to a friend of mine yesterday about this, that you have to remember about Antonio Conte is that that Spurs squad is not as bad as they have been playing. No. It is 
is not as poor as their position in the table relative to the money they've spent would have you would have you believe. And what Antonio Conte has got a pretty solid track record of doing is getting players playing better than they have been, and in some cases, really bringing them back from the brink. I will be fascinated, and I mean fascinated, to see what he does with say Adele Ali. When we talk Tango about Dumbley, he said to be a big fan of who he thinks he can turn around as but well. But when we talk about you know Victor Moses, a guy who had absolutely no future at Chelsea probably turned him that season where Chelsea won the league into the best right wing back in the country mm. and and arguably on the world stage very much in the in the conversation took a 35 year old Ashley Young brought him to Italy win Syria yeah you know yeah. having been absolutely nowhere in terms of Manchester United's team selection get a sniff, I would not be surprised if there are one two three four Spurs players potentially who all of a sudden start being world beaters parallel to where they once were under a Nuno and under a Mourinho. I'm not sure who they'll be, mm. but I'm certainly interested to see what he does with, as I say, a player like, yeah, uh, Adele Alley. You know, let's yeah. find out. Let's find out. Certainly we'll be in- very interested to see, won't it, as well. Just a quick mention, I don't think we've got time to fully go into it, obviously, as well, to England, who seem to be flying in the T20 Cricket World Cup as well. So best of luck to them as they go on. I'm sure you'll, you'll reiterate, Ed, as well. Um, but it is coming up to the end of the show, and obviously that can only mean one thing. Like I said, England are doing well in the cricket, and there's a lot going on. But I know what everyone's really been waiting for. It's not been to talk about Conte or Wickham or Reading or Maidenhead with respect. It's, of course the extra time predictions league that everyone's been waiting for. That's right, it's prediction time, as it always is here at the end of the show on River Radio, and plenty for us to get through, as always, as uh, the, the month comes to an end. I'm not, I don't, I don't know if we wanted to say who won, Ed, I don't know if you, who won this month. I think, I think you want to say yeah, who won. D- yeah, I think I do, actually, because that's, that's <laughs> the, I'm a def- not, I'm a, not only am I the champion, I'm the defending champion, where I've won it back-to-back now. You remember just now when you were talking about how Palace were really great <laughs> a shift in, in the Generation Cup to, to have something in the locker? <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> look, look, I mean, I, I saw my team lose a playoff final and England lose the Euros. If I can take trophies, I'm taking trophies at this point, mate. I just did. Who am I? Yeah. Just stand in your way. <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. A quick reminder of the rules um, if, if you're new to this. So each week a member of the team will pick out a set of fixtures due to take place in the coming days with each player making predictions for the outcome of each. A completely correct prediction earns a player three points whilst correctly forecasting the outcome. The winner or the loser earns one and failure to do either naturally wins no points. Uh, you obviously did pick the predictions this week, Ed. First and foremost, you did do that Birmingham uh, Reading women game. How do you see that one sort of unfolding and, and what, what's your sort of prediction for that one? Uh, I, I see it being a closer game than you might envisage based on Birmingham's form. Uh, I've gone for a 2-0 win for Reading. Um, I think they they will have a bit too much for Birmingham um, and they need to win this one. They need to win this one just to propel them slightly further up the league. Um, so that's that's the way I've gone. I don't think it'll be a walkover, but uh, I think they'll get the job done. Yeah, I'm slightly more confident in them, only in the sense that that game they did win. Before before that break, where they where they obviously lost to Bristol City, they they genuinely look really good, and I think if they can channel that against the team in Birmingham that are resilient, but ultimately I think they're better than I think they'll be okay. So I've gone for three one. Uh, Reading Abbey against Marlow was the next one in the rugby. Uh, how have you how have you called that one? It's so difficult to call that one. They they've won as many games as each other. They've lost as many games as each other. The one difference I can I can see is that Reading Abbey are a bit more free scoring or have been in the in the five fixtures they've played in the league versus Marlow. Um, you know, like we saw. With 
with the Marlow Aylesbury game. It's going to be very, very tight. I've gone for an Abbey win and I'm going to go 24 points to 20 purely by virtue of home advantage. Bizarrely, I actually also have Reading Abbey to get 24 points. Similarly, so very strange. Uh, I do have Marlow to get 27, though. I genuinely think there'll be three points in it. I think it's that tight. Both teams seem to be doing enough to, to, to keep, stay on top of each other, if you will. So I think that'll be really interesting to see how that unfolds. But it's, uh, it's, it's certainly will be, uh, you know, a, a weird one and not one that's easy to predict, which is the whole point of the Predictions League, to an extent, I suppose. <laughs> um, we've got um, Reading Aces against Cardiff in the volleyball as well. What have you gone for on that one? Uh, that's an interesting one. That's an interesting one um, because I think Reading have, have maybe won like two games out of four or one game out of four, but Cardiff have lost all five. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, Reading are at home and I'm going to go for a Reading win. Okay, awesome. I've, I've gone for a Cardiff win in that one. So you know. Because you weren't privy to the information I've just told you. Yes, you? exactly that. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> busy man, busy man. Um, but finally, obviously, just as we're running out of time, we've got um, England, South Africa in the T20. You, you, you back in the boys? 100%. England are four <laughs> for four. Josh Butler's been been incredible in this tournament. Really uh, you know, cricket's really on, on the upturn in, in the UK and it's, you know, the World Cup T20, the 100 has, has really spiked interest in it. But I, yeah, I mean, South Africa are a good side. They've won three out of four, but I, I just think England are going to have too much. I think I agree and it certainly will make out for a very interesting game and England certainly are looking almost formidable not only in not only in T20 cricket but in, in most walks of cricket as well slowly coming up to the end of the show it's been an absolute pleasure Ed thank you so much for joining me